Hey, it's Dan here. If you want to hear this episode of the Backchat Podcast without ads and get extra content that no one else gets, head to backchatstudios.com.au where you can sign up as a patron and access all of our bloody good merch. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey guys, this week on Backchat, we've got Dan Ryan on the show. Genuinely one of the most insightful and intriguing chats we've had on the show. I can't wait for you to hear Dan's story. It's an absolute cracker. Dan currently coaches the West Coast Fever in the Suncorp Super Netball League, coaching the team to a premiership last year. But Dan's story has been a roller coaster and a journey from the get-go. From funding his own sporting career with game show wins to captaining the Australian men's netball side. And throughout his coaching career, Dan hasn't always taken the easiest path, but what a story he has to tell at the end of it all. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Give us a rating and follow Backchat on YouTube to watch all of our episodes whenever you like. Rightio, very special episode of Back Chat. We're powered by Fleet Network for the 2023 season. Very excited with that. And a big thank you to KO Sports for this week's episode. We're here with Dan Ryan, the coach of the West Coast Fever. How are you, mate? Very well. Thanks for having me, guys. Now, I've... Anytime, Dan. Dan's always welcome here. <laughs> Two Dans v. One Will. Mm. I mean, tell you what, we've got some matchups this week. So <laughs> KO Sports... They're looking after us for this episode. Make sure you tune in to KO because you can grab uh, any of the West Coast Fever games live over at KO. Have you got your account sorted with KO? Uh, I do. do. Yeah, yeah I Good. do. I do. And you know what, though? You don't even have to be logged in because I've seen there's been free correct. netball games as well. Yeah, great. All right. We're going we're to throw a bit from KO at you throughout. But, Dan, I, I don't know if you're a big Backchat fan, but yeah, we ask our guests the same question. The first question is the same with anyone we ever have on here. Right, and you've been a sports person. You've been, you've played for your country. Been an Australian netballer. We understand you're good at netball. We understand you can coach too. You're a premiership coach, but we want to say we don't care about those things just for the moment. <laughs> we want to hear your greatest sporting achievement, but you can't be in netball because yep. That's look, too we know we know you're good at netball, right? Why else would we be talking to you? We know Dan's good at other things, but he's, I mean, this cricket ball mm. right here, he's taken five for 16 and under nine cricket, no, under 12 cricket 12s, match. yeah, in a grand final. I'm a state hurdling champions, under nines. Excellent. Um, competing for Geelong, which we're going to touch yeah, on. Yeah, very, very good. Very, yeah. hey, hey, Dan Const, Dan yes. Ryan is a Geelong boy. I want to know, if, the Geelong boy, what's your greatest sporting achievement not 
on the netball court? Good question. Um, making me think here, but I'm going to go back to my very first uh, sporting endeavours, which was in gymnastics, actually. It was the first sport I ever did. Nice. I reckon I would have been maybe five or six years of age, and I'm going to put the achievement down to self-awareness that I wasn't good enough. Um, and I remember in the first competition we had to do, um, and I was a pretty small five-year-old little tacker, we had to do like a, a pull-up on the bar and like an over overturn or whatever it was called. And I was the only one in the competition that didn't have the strength to do it. Um, and so I had to kind of give up halfway through the routine and salute and walk off. And that was the last time I ever stepped floor in a gymnastics mat. <laughs> oh, I, mean, I mean, I was hoping for like, yeah, and I didn't do the trick, but I did this amazing thing and I won the whole competition. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> nah, self-awareness wasn't the sport for me. Very good. That's good. That's very mature <laughs> yeah, as, a, as, very. A, as a young five-year-old. Yeah. So as I mentioned, mate, you're a Geelong boy. I am, Little River. Doing a bit of research for this, I saw Geelong and Karai on Little River. Dan, you may not know where all these places are, but no. I can tell you one thing. If you're from Geelong, you're a good bloke. That's basically how it goes. <laughs> yeah, correct. Very uh, true. What was, your, what was your upbringing like, mate? Was it, was it, you know, you're involved with sport now, you're coaching professional netball team, but were you sporty growing up? Oh, massively. I think we, um, you know, back Little River is our little country town just off the, the highway there between Melbourne and Geelong and 10 acres of property, lots of animals, big open spaces, three brothers. You spend your whole days out in the backyard playing sport, competing against each other, fighting for survival, all of those types of things. <laughs> when you've got a big family of four boys and um, it was just such a great, great way to, to grow up and a great way to you know, realistically entertain yourself by being out in the great outdoors and to, you know, play sport and be really active and, um, you know, have really supporting parents that took you to all the places you needed to get to because you're a little bit isolated out there in the country a bit. But, um, yeah, best upbringing I could have possibly had out in the, out in the country. Was there sporting talents of your parents? Yeah, there was actually. So dad was a, a pretty good baseballer. Um, so he played right. played that game at a, a decent, I suppose, state level. And um, that was his passion as a youngster. And mum probably mostly, she was actually a state sprinter. Um, nice. Her claim to fame is running relays against the great Raylene Boyle. So wow. um, I remember as a kid wanting to collect all mum's medals and, and pretend they were mine. But I love those <laughs> stories of her telling us that she used to to run with um, our auntie actually up against Raylene. So that was awesome. And, and she played a huge amount of netball um, just after she started having all her kids. She got involved in that and um, just played pretty competitively around the local area. But, you know, that was my first introduction to netball is just watching mum play on the side of a court in a pram. So, um, yeah, pretty pretty decent parents, but um, lots of opportunities they provided for us, obviously. So as I mentioned off the top, you're now a coach, but you're a player. You played for your country, captain the country. Is this right? You're undefeated at international level. Is that right? Well, as a as a captain, I didn't lose as an Australian men's player or as a captain. But we only probably played a handful of games every hey, year. Hey, right? no, so, no, no, no need for context here. 100. <laughs> Let's not get uh, the truth get in the way of a good story. But yeah, started off as a player as an eight year old kid when I first played the game. My dream was to captain the Australian men's netball team, and I was really lucky. I think as a kid that I always had a really clear mind as to what I wanted to achieve, and was really, I guess, quite bold in saying what it was that I wanted to accomplish. And the first time I saw netball played at the top level and watching mum play on the side of the court, just this passion for the sport grew enormously very quickly. And the goals were pretty lofty and pretty big from the start. And I remember saying to mum and dad, I'm going to play for Australia one day. I'm going to be the captain. And uh, didn't see any obstacles or barriers, even though, you know, as the only boy playing with all the girls, you didn't even really know if there was an Australian men's netball team. So um, it's just funny what your passion is and how it starts. And uh, nothing was going to stop me from a very young age to follow that dream. 
think That's historically cool. and externally, like I can't say that I've been involved with it, but just hearing that small part, is it is it similar to what young girls would have faced growing up in the footy realm, you know, playing a boys' sport in AFL, netball, a girls' sport? You play, is that a similar comparison? Yeah, absolutely. And when I was actually living in Adelaide, I spent a bit of time with Chelsea Randall from the Adelaide Crows yep. and um, we were both at a – um, at a sports function and speaking and the synergy and similarities between both of our stories, but also the language in which we use to tell our stories was really similar. And we always saw, I suppose, what we both did in a male-dominated sport and female-dominated sport as nothing different. So we saw ourselves, I suppose, really captured in the environment and captured in the sport and it was up to us individually to make our dreams happen as opposed to not seeing all the barriers, obstacles and challenges that might be in our way. So I've really enjoyed watching um, the AFLW grow and hearing the stories of all of the girls that have probably had a very similar upbringing to me on the opposite side of it. but what it does demonstrate is it if you love what you do, it doesn't matter what other people think and you find a way to make these things happen. And um, it's great that I think boys now in netball and men in netball and girls in footy and women in footy have these great opportunities to to play at the highest level. And, you know, from the grassroots participation entry point to go all the way to the very top of their sport where five, ten years ago those avenues perhaps didn't exist. I think it's really exciting that, you know, we can have those opportunities, whatever the sport, whatever the gender. Obviously, like mixed netballs are, <clears throat> excuse me, a big thing. Um, like people will play that casually, but you don't see a lot of men's netball tournaments around. So, how do you even get into that? Is it does it sort of stem from like just finding people through mixed competitions? Yeah, I think the the men's netball space has been going since 1985. So every Easter, there's a week long national championships, and from that, the Australian teams are selected, and that's that's been happening, I guess, for a number of decades now. But probably more so over the past five years, it's taken a huge leap forward, and I think men's netball took a significant step forward last year with the Australian Diamonds and Netball Australia in particular for the first time embracing the men's game as a product. Uh, Normally it had been something that's been a little bit shunned behind closed doors and not fully embraced to try and protect the women's game, I'd imagine. However, um, the Australian men's team travelled alongside the Australian Diamonds during the Constellation Cup against New Zealand and the first ever men's match in Australia was broadcast on KO Sports, actually Fox Sports for um, Australia versus New Zealand and people watching that for the first time were so in awe of the athleticism, the skill and and almost this hidden giant of the sport that people can actually now embrace women's netball, men's netball, fast five, mixed netball, et cetera. Um, but I'm really excited where men's netball is now and finally it being acknowledged as I think a really important space in netball and the reality is that all of the men that are involved in netball and all of the boys and men that play netball are here to enhance the game and continue to rise the women who play it to the very top. So, um, you know, I think it's time that netball does become fully inclusive of both genders um, and netball will always be the premier sport for women and the diamonds will always be the premier product. But I really do feel the men's game can play a great role in further enhancing how good our women are at the top of the level. We will get to your coaching career in a little bit, but I want to stay with your playing career for a little longer. Where, where did you play? What was your position? 
I was a goal attack, very first position I played um, as an eight-year-old kid. I remember that and very rarely moved out of that position. So um, I was That's very... the best position though. <laughs> oh, you get to run it's... around and shoot. Absolutely. You get all the glory, you get all the hard work. <laughs> and if you, you don't win, it's probably your fault as well. Um, but no, I just, I love the challenge of that position and I loved everything that it entailed and played a little bit of midcourt here and there as the career grew. But yeah, really fortunate that the majority of the career was, was in goals. I've had really good intel that you referred to yourself as the male Sherelle McMahon. Is that correct or incorrect? Uh, incorrect because I didn't refer to myself as that. Many other people did. However, to be fair, I would have um, idolised Sherelle McMahon growing up. So she certainly would have been somebody that I tailored my game around. And she was shorter like I am, I guess, and similar attributes with speed and agility. And I think, um, you know, that's also something that's quite interesting that a young boy can look up to a female athlete and that be their role model. Um, and I thought that was something that was quite unique as well that um, that I thought was fantastic. So, yeah, Sherelle was absolutely the childhood era, I- hero and if anybody made any correlation between the two of us, I would absolutely bloody love it. <laughs> <laughs> That's unreal. So what's some, you know, I, I imagine there was probably difficult elements and positive elements, you know, going through that as a player with the, with the you know, male-female sort of narrative or whatever. But looking back on the career, if you got some favourite memories, you know, tournaments you played in, um, you know, big moments from your playing career that you still remember now? Yeah, I think probably a couple that that stand out. There was probably a tournament in 2004 in Fiji where New Zealand were probably – at one of their strongest I've ever seen them. And we played them a couple of games in the rounds and just got our asses absolutely kicked in both matches. And we met them in the grand final. And it was probably the game that I remember in my career that I felt the most in the zone, the most in control, the most unstoppable I've ever felt. And still really remember what that feeling was like being in that flow state for 60 minutes. And I think it's really rewarding when you, you've never beaten a team before, but you do it when it matters the most and when it really counts. And just to find that killer edge and that instinct in those moments was something that was quite special. And I think probably the other part that I've really enjoyed now that I'm coaching and reflecting back on is just all of the different relationships I had with all of my head coaches and how important the relationship between player and coach is. And I was really lucky, I think, around probably 2007, 2008 to have the chance to work with Marg Angove, who is an Australian netball coaching icon Mm. Um, and a real key part in my story in terms of where some of my coaching opportunities happened because of my interaction or meetings with her. But just the chance for us as young men in netball to be able to rub shoulders with some of the greatest of all time in women's netball was something that we we really loved. And so those moments were really cool. And I think even too, just the opportunity to get involved in the women's environments. I think Norma Plummer was great at embracing the men in the game. And there were a couple of times where she invited us up to the AIS at our cost, of course. We we paid paid to be there. <laughs> Thanks for uh, your <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but um, just to help the team prepare for the Commonwealth Games and, and those types of opportunities where we could really be embraced as valuable assets within the sport. So many different experiences, whether it was on the court or relationships or just opportunity, I think. Um, I know that my playing days have set me up for what I've done afterwards, but yeah, just so many great memories with great people. What about financially coming through that system? And you can answer this as you know openly and honestly as you like. We had Nat Medhurst on, on Backchat uh, quite a few months ago, and she spoke about her time coming up through the system as a young female player in a female sport, effectively. Was there... Did, were you working other jobs while you were doing this? Was this a full-time thing for you as an athlete? Like, 
Well, the interesting thing with men's netball, I suppose, that the public wouldn't be aware of is that we pay to play. So anytime right. you're going off to a national championships, you're probably 4000 bucks out of pocket. Anytime you're going out away with the Australian men's team, back in my day, you were anywhere between four to eight grand out of pocket, depending on where you were going to. So it certainly wasn't sustainable over a long, long period of time. And you had to ensure that, one, you were working full-time, full-time work to ensure you had the money to pay for these trips. But also, you know, when I was a youngster, I had to rely on mum and dad a lot. Um, luckily for me, though, I won the, the Price is Right showcase and had a little, bit of, little bit of pocket money sitting in the bank. So uh, just a, just a side story. But I actually <laughs> had to use that money to actually pay for a lot of these netball trips. So Tell me everything about <laughs> you the met Price is Right. Met Larry Ender. Oh. met him. Took him four years worth. Yeah. What game did you play? What, what would well, it uh, the game I had to play uh, was Squeeze. So I had six numbers and I had to get rid of one number oh, to I get the price one. of uh, what it was. So, so hang on, yeah. even further back. So you're sitting in the crowd and yeah. you get your name called and yeah. you come running down like a lunatic down the stairs. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how it works. And then yeah. you win the bid. Win the bid, right. yeah. And get then, on to the squeeze. Yeah. And then, and then what happens? <laughs> and then so you have to sit and watch the rest of the show to see whether you're the top two in terms of the most money that you've won in that Other game. Other crowd yelling, you're like, do this, do that. That's yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So I've got on to bid for the showcase and it's gone back and forward for a little bit with I think the girl I was up against was Coralie or something like that. God, how old are you at this stage? I was 19. Wow. Yeah, 19. Um, I'd just come off playing national championships the day before and I was absolutely exhausted and I wow. was bored shitless sitting in the crowd. And they filmed three shows in a night. And after the second show, I'm like, I'm just ready to go. So I actually got out of my chair and started to walk out of the studio. Studio door closed. I had to go and sit back down. And then three minutes later, Dan Ryan, come on down. I'm like, oh, my yes. <laughs> So that's how it actually started. And then, yeah, back to the showcase, bidding back and forward. And then we got down to it was my bid and I was either going to get it right or she was going to get it. So it was like down to two options and luckily I got the exact price right and then went on to actually bid on the showcase and that was, um, yeah, you got about seven prizes that you got to put in order, et cetera, and that's where you're kind of interacting with the crowd and, um, yeah, won the showcase. Did you, <laughs> do, the, did you do the putt? No, that, didn't do the putt. No, no, the no. putt's a separate one. <laughs> yeah, different So way. can you say, like, what, give me a ball putt, like what did you win? So altogether, I think it was about $36,000 worth of prizes. Oh, so there was, a, yeah, there was a Suzuki Liana car. You should want a car. So you won the whole thing. Didn't have a license <laughs> <laughs> and didn't get a license until I was 32. So Fleet um, Network could have yeah. sorted him out, mate. Anyway, didn't get his license until 32. Yeah. Had, um, what was it? There was a four-wheel quad bike that I rode around in the backyard for five minutes and then sold it. Um, <laughs> we had a kitchen, uh, all these other stuff, like some really cool stuff in there. And then um, – Dad was pretty good. He's like, oh, sell this, sell that, put a bit of money in the bank and you can start using all that money for your bloody netball trip. So I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so good. But How uh, did you even get like, – why were you on prizes right from the beginning? Did you just apply? And well, I think you just apply to get tickets. And then um, a friend of mine, Leah, from um, high school, she got tickets. She goes, oh, you want to come along? I'm like, yep, no worries. So, um, yeah, went along. There's about four or five of us. And um, oh, it was just abs absolute luck of the draw type that, of thing. That That's is, crazy. That is yeah. unreal. The you elite, won. Prices yeah, right. You weren't just on it. You won. Yeah. The elite – Men's netballing yeah. captain of the country funded his career <laughs> from the process. Thanks, Larry. <laughs> I forget well. it actually happened though. But you, when you talk about the money for netball, I'm like, that's where a lot of that money went to actually play the game. Do you have the vision of it? I do actually. Can you? Uh, we'll we'll be, have to we'll find it. No, yeah. we'll be attaining that <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, like, that's a, that's a good transition. <laughs> I can't stop thinking about <laughs> yeah. it. It's amazing. That's a good transition out of uh, your playing career. Thank you, Larry Ender. Very, <laughs> yes. very nice work into coaching. Like, what what's that transition like from? 
from from player to coach. Uh, we spoke about it before, doing some media as well. Yeah, I did. Um, you know, coaching. I coached a lot of the grassroots and community stuff when I first got involved in it from about the age of 14, 15. And it was, it was really my first part-time work, just get a bit of pocket money more than anything. And so um, as I was playing at the elite level, I was always coaching side by side. So I always had, you know, a finger in the pie in both, both camps, so to speak, and enjoyed, I guess, taking what I was learning from playing from all of my coaches and passing it on to the little kids that I was working with or, you know, the country footy netball teams that I was working with at the times too. And then just getting really curious about what my coaching style was becoming and actually then getting almost really interested in the whole craft of coaching as opposed to just doing it for a job and kind of cutting and pacing what you were doing at your own training session. So um, the coaching journey moved along very, very quickly. And, you know, after doing a bit of, you know, high school coaching with year eight, year nine, year tens in Geelong College actually was where I, my first little job. Very good. <laughs> um, and then I jumped into working with the Karaya Devils at the uh, Geelong District Netball Football League and had some great success there with a premiership and a runner-up in our first two years. So that kind of gave me the real love for the journey you can take a team on. And, um, and being, confidence. Yeah, confidence yeah. that, you know, I had some skills in it and was really curious to – evolve and get better and from there started to jump into I guess the Netball Victoria pathway with some state league and all those types of things and very very quickly kind of jumped a few of the steps and got a tap on the shoulder from the Adelaide Thunderbirds in 2012 to come over as an assistant coach which again the relationship I go back to Marg Angove who was my Australian men's coach back in around 2007-2008 her daughter Jane Woodlands Thompson was the head coach of the Adelaide Thunderbirds at the time and our men's teams were always going over to Adelaide and working with the Thunderbirds in pre-season and, you know, around this time too, I guess I was commentating so Jane could see that I had a bit of, you know, a clear understanding of the game and could articulate it and was coaching and still playing at the top level and she was always a bit of a, a thinker outside the box and said, hey, what do you think about coming over as an assistant coach? So it it shifted, I guess, my focus from being where I was with my coaching, going through the Victorian pathway and happy doing what I was doing to, I guess, take a huge leap of faith and and see what it would be like as an assistant coach at the high performance level. So let's well. pause it there. You, you had to make the choice between coaching and, and media at some stage. Is that right? You were speaking before, you had goals coming out of uni, uh, accredited journalist, um, got a degree like Daniel. Daniel <laughs> and Daniel. Um, He's called me Daniel. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, what, am I, what am I? Unstudied. I'm, I'm not a journalist, am I? You wouldn't no, call me a journalist. No, hell no, definitely. Um, but you had to make the choice between the two and you, you wanted to commentate the Olympics. Is yeah, that, right? that was that was a second dream as a, as a kid, play netball for Australia and commentate the Olympics and spent most of my childhood, you know, riding a broomstick, pretending I was a horse at the Melbourne Cup and calling <laughs> horse races and <laughs> throwing the ball to myself in the backyard, pretending I was Steve Raboud and Ann Sargent and, you know, Bruce McAvaney commentating the 100-metre sprint. Like, I just love that stuff. And so while I did jump into the high-performance coaching from 2012, I was still working with Channel 10 doing some netball commentary and producing as well and some work at the Australian Open Tennis over the summers. And the reality was that both jobs, coaching and media, alone weren't enough for me basically to survive. So I needed both of them hand in hand to create some form of sustainable income. Yeah. Um, and at that point in time, none were, neither neither 
industry was really presenting a clear path forward in where full-time work or stability would be. And if you want stability, don't work in media and don't work in high-performance sport. <laughs> There's probably two things hey. where you won't get that. Um, but I was really lucky that I think um, because I had the two skill sets, I could manage both and I still really enjoyed both. And I made a, a conscious effort um, at the end of 2013. So 2012, 2013, I was commentating and coaching and in 2013 with the Thunderbirds we actually won the premiership and um, I thought that was just a good time to shift the focus to now really see if I could make a full-time career out of the media role and really roll the dice in that space and I ended up accepting a job at Sky News in Sydney as a sports reporter and presenter and had to step aside from the coaching for that period of time and I lasted six months there um, in that job and it just wasn't for me. Full-time media work in a newsroom wasn't filling the bucket and not having coaching or netball as a day-to-day um, bucket filler itself was quite challenging too. So after the six months, I stepped away from that job and went back to the Thunderbirds as an assistant coach. And that was the moment for me where you know, I tried the newsroom because I thought if I try the newsroom as a sports reporter and then get all my commentary gigs on top of that, there's a good su- substantial media career but I wasn't prepared to do the newsroom because it just wasn't for me and I didn't really enjoy it. And so I made the call, right, I'm going to give everything I can to coaching. And what actually happened around that time is 2014 and it was the first time in the professional netball era that a male head coach had been appointed and that was Rob Wright at the New South Wales Swifts. And all that was needed for me to shift my focus from media to the coaching was to see Rob's appointment and to think, well, if Rob can, I absolutely can, and this is the path I'm now going to take. And so that's where the journey to pursue the coaching as the career with the media then becoming the hobby on the side um, really took off. So you've got to try it till you know it. And, um, yeah, just through circumstance and opportunity, the the direction shifted. Can I ask what it was about media that wasn't for you? Like was there something specific? Was it the grind? Was it the the actual, I don't know, you know, some of the nature of – I'm assuming newsrooms, you know, in, out, you know, so do one story, you move on the next. Like was it, what, what was it? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think it's kind of like coaching. It's it's not for everybody and I think a newsroom certainly isn't for everybody and no. some of my best mates from uni are in the newsroom at Channel 9 and absolutely bloody love the hustle and bustle and the ambushing and the stress and I'm like, this is the worst fucking thing ever. Like, it's not like <laughs> I want to do this. Um, but, I, like, it was tough too and I think what I probably realised, like, I love sport but my passion in sport is Olympic sports and so I didn't really have too much knowledge or love, I guess, for the other footy codes and all of those sports that really consume newsrooms. Um, So I felt a little bit out of my depth there and um, didn't really think what I was having to sacrifice from a lifestyle perspective too, because Sky News is pretty tough. They they give great opportunities to aspiring journos, but I mean, you might get Monday and Tuesday off during the week and all of your weekends are gone and you're working really long hours and you're also not just presenting the news, you're also preparing the next bulletin, you're doing match reports, you're doing all this stuff as well. So it's actually, it's relentless. Like it's, it's a 10 to 12 hour shift where you genuinely don't have time to breathe. And some people absolutely love that. And for me, I'm just like, this is not a lifestyle I want to live. This is too much. (laughs) Well, (laughs) I'm about to put it to you though, before we go into your coaching career, and I don't know, but I would say elements that you just say that you didn't like, uh, the stress, the relentless nature, 
the fact that you're working weekends, the uh, ten to twelve. I reckon you're doing that as a coach, yeah. mate. Am I yeah. right or not? Well, you're absolutely right, but I, I know what I'm doing as a coach, so I've actually got great confidence in my knowledge. But I tell you what, being from Victoria and then having to figure out who's who in rugby league and what the yeah. what the stories are, I'm like, this is just too much. Like it just it wasn't for me. I love the presenting side of it, and actually the stress of presenting live on air is what I got a huge buzz about. The performance element. Yeah, absolutely. But that and like having to deliver in that moment, like I got a real kick out of that, but that was only a very small portion of the job. Um, And I think to it was probably heading in a direction where like I was in Sydney by myself, no friends or family there. I'm like, I can't be working these hours and having this much stress and having no outlets in my life and expecting to be getting through, you know, the very best I can. So it was a big call to make, but I'm really glad that I tried that because um, I dabbled a little bit before in some newsrooms at Channel 7 in Melbourne and, and kind of enjoyed all that stuff a little bit. But, um, yeah, it was just a great opportunity to get real clarity going, you know what, I like the media and I love live broadcasting, I love commentating, but news journalism is not for me and I needed that to really know that I had tried and that I would given it my best and had a real good feel for it to know that I'm now without a shadow of a doubt going down the, the coaching path. Well, and so we're back in 2014 <coughs> around then. And um, Sorry, with, with, just a quick question. Yeah. Uh, with the media stuff, I've been around um, doing the sports journal stuff around coaches that just like could not stand the side of you, like not me personally, but just journos that mm. have to stay up um, later and, and do a presser after a game. They're probably just lost or whatever. Did you Do you have any sort of like more appreciation for those people doing that job because you were in it? Yeah, absolutely. And I think I've always tried to be really open and transparent with any media interviews that I do to ensure that the fans or the public or whoever's actually consuming the media is taken along for the journey for what it is. So really trying to avoid, I guess, the cliches and and all that type of stuff in, in how you actually articulate that stuff to the media. I think the media plays a really critical role in sharing the narrative and telling the story of the team's journey across the course of a season. So I think you have a responsibility as a coach to give back in that space. And there are times where you don't want to because you just, you know, sometimes at the end of the game, end of a game, particularly after a loss, all you want to do is sit in your own thoughts as opposed to have to share any. Um, but I think it's really important that you do do that. Um, and the media is such critical stakeholders in the big picture of professional sport. Um, you've got to respect the role they play and, and they, you know, in doing that, they respect the role you play and sometimes the emotions that you've got to manage yourself through. Hey, if I've seen a segue, it's right there. Just remember you can watch two Suncorp Super Netball matches every round and every finals match live and free on KO Freebies. So uh, talking about media and access, KO Sports and, and the you know the guys are actually covering the game now. For me, who I haven't been a netball fan growing up, but I like sport and the access that KO Sports is starting to give to to punters i would call myself a punter mm. just like sport i don't i haven't followed netball growing up i don't have idols or heroes i do in afl but actually having access to players to the sport to coaches like you're talking about like it's a positive thing right that's how the game grows oh absolutely and i think one of the things i love about sport is just the general consumer of it or even if i'm really invested in my own sport is sharing the stories yeah. and mm. you know when you share the story you understand the context you can gravitate towards others more than some you get to be really invested in in what's going on so i think ko sports particularly for the netball they're doing a great job at seeing 
you know, beyond the job, beyond the role and stripping things back and diving into great topical areas that netball perhaps has been really conservative and not tapped into. Um, and even a couple of the shows that, you know, Fox do on KO with, you know, the, the preview show and the review show, some of that stuff's just really great for our game that all other sports do because it's a part of their nature. But now that we're embracing that side of it, the, the sport's growing rapidly in that professional sense at the top level. So let's bring you back yeah. to 2014. You see a real pathway for a male coach in the netball. You, you cut your media ties. You're sick of the newsroom. So you go back assistant coach at the Thunderbirds. Is that right? Yep. So I jump in probably at about round five or six. So I come back into the halfway marks. So that's my third year with the club. And then spend 2015 there as well as the assistant coach. And at the end of the 2015 season, Jane Woodlands-Thompson, the head coach, was stepping down. So the head coach role was obviously going to be available and Netball South Australia decided to go to market. And um, I obviously put my hand up for it, having having been there for four years as an assistant coach um, and having quite a bit of head coaching experience at lesser levels leading up to it, I thought, you know, throw your hat in the ring. And this was, again, me demonstrating my desire to pursue this head coach and um, I got interviewed for the job a couple of times. I didn't end up getting it. And at the time, I thought it was the end of the world. Like I was absolutely gutted. Yeah. Um, and I think when, you, when you're there for four years as an assistant coach, you almost feel like you've got one hand on the job. But in hindsight, the assistant coach chair will never prepare you for the head coach chair. So any assistant coaches out there are thinking that's how it works, it doesn't. Um, what well, does it, it? It helps, but it certainly doesn't quite prepare you. Right. Um, it's a completely different role. So when I didn't get the head coaching role at Thunderbirds for 2016, I actually got offered a job in the UK at Manchester Thunder. So Tracy Neville, who is the hit legendary England coach, she was moving into um, into that role full-time, coaching England, and she was the head coach of Manchester Thunder. And I basically came in to take her job and moved over to Manchester for a year. And it was the best year of my life. I had so much fun. I loved coaching the English athletes. We made it all the way through to the grand final, lost by two goals. It was devastating, but a great experience. <laughs> and then at the end of that season, um, Thunderbirds um, were looking for a new head coach again. So who they employed only last for, lasted for a little bit. And then they were looking for a new head coach and interviewed me again for the role. And I got it. And it was for the start of Suncorp Super Netball, which is now our domestic competition. So it was a really difficult decision for me to make because I was loving Manchester Thunder. I was working as an assistant coach with the England Roses with Tracy Neville at the time doing some specialist work, bits and pieces. I was loving living in Manchester. It was a wicked city, had so much fun. But the draw of going back to the club at Thunderbirds where I'd been for four years and me being at the time an eternal optimist, really aspirational, I thought that I could get the club back on track. But as soon as I got there, I'm like, well, we're in a bit of trouble here. Like it, the, the club was in a difficult spot um, and it was two very you, challenging, confronting years. You, you won your first game, didn't you? We absolutely did. You won your first game. So you think, how right. good is this? I'm back yep. home. I've made the right decision. Back on track. Then you didn't win another game for two years. 28 games. Yeah. Yep. So you lost 28 20, games. 20, 27 games. So won the first and then lost 27 games in, in a row. In a row. Two wooden spoons. Oh, yep. What's that like as a coach? Horrific. Mm. It's it's unbelievable. I think I, I look back I look back on it now though as the most important, the most educational, the most developmental, the best thing that could have happened to me in my rookie years of a head coach at the top level. Because what you learn 
during those times of absolute stress, absolute duress, back against the wall, survival mode, makes you appreciate everything that you need to have around you, need to know about high performance programs, systems, support structure. It sets you up to be really grateful for what happens when things go well and you have everything you need. And um, it wasn't just tough for me as the head coach those two years. It was very tough for the athletes, for all the staff. The organisation was struggling. The board had its own challenges. There were financial woes. It was just a really difficult place to be. And I think for me, I'm able now to look back on it and go, it was the wrong time for me and the wrong place. Adelaide at the time definitely wasn't set up to support a rookie coach and be ready for Suncorp Super Netball in comparison to the other clubs that demonstrated perhaps a better readiness for that. Um, but, yeah, like I said now, I look back at, on it now with absolute gratitude because all of the lessons and learning and growth and wisdom that I gained from those two years has really made me who I am as a coach and a leader today because of those hardships. And I always think I'm really passionate. I always try and uh, instigate this into my athletes and influence this into athletes. If you can look the hard times and the tough times in the eye and make meaning of them, they will be the greatest source of fuel, education, growth, learning you'll ever get if you can embrace them for what they are. So I'm doing what I'm doing now and I'm confident in my skill set and the knowledge that I have and the journey I've gone on because of how confronting those two years were at Adelaide as a young rookie. Um, and learning how to lose or processing losing is a skill all head coaches need to be able to do because you've got to be able to respect winning for what it is too and also losing. So I see, you know, one of my big philosophies now is I have great respect for winning and losing because they can both teach you equal amounts of, of great stuff if you allow it. What about when you're yeah. in that moment? Like, like I know looking back on it, it's a learning and now you look back at it as great, but I, again, assuming at the time that would have been stressful. Uh, it, it was the worst time of my life and it, I think that the reality of it, that it impacted every single part of my being to the point where I couldn't even recognise myself anymore. The day-to-day -day stress, the anxiety, the constant battle, the energy invested to pick everybody up after a loss and put the hope that we can get it right the next time and then have to go through all of those emotions again. Like it's tough at the top level losing one game and even this year when we've lost our first game it took me a couple of days to process it right I'm like how the fuck did I do it 27 <laughs> weeks in a row across two years so that that's like really challenging um but like I look back to really proud that I actually got through it and I genuinely believe every single time we step foot on the court particularly in our second year where the losses were you know they were adding up 21 22 23 24 like it become became relentless there was for the majority of that time, though, a genuine belief that we stepped over that line on game day with a real genuine level of positivity that we could do something today. So if I can do anything to a team, it is instilled belief and positivity and energy. It's what I really pride myself on. Um, even when it's tough, you've got to find the hope somewhere. But I, as a human being for those two years, was on absolute survival mode yeah. and had no idea how to look after myself either. So... By the back of it, I had a great respect for individual well-being. It's something that I'm very disciplined with now, not only with myself, but with my athletes. Um, and you just learn all those things. And you, it's I think when you're in it, you're in the cyclone. You can't see the big picture. You can't see outside of you know, the chaos right in front of your face. And you're doing everything you can just to keep your head above water, so to speak. Um, and it, it really is just a relentless beast that takes over your whole life. 
um, with no outlets and no time to catch your breath. But I'd be really interested to see if I was back in a situation like that now with what I know, how I would actually handle it differently. You don't, you don't want to be back there. <laughs> I, I definitely don't. But I would probably pride myself on the fact that I'd be better skilled yes. and I'd have more knowledge as to what what I would demand, what I would communicate, what I would set up, all of those things. But at the end of the day, when you're a rookie coach, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And the only way to figure all that stuff out is to get your ass handed to you and to be on survival mode to know what it looks like at its worst of worst and lowest lows so that you can really appreciate when things are up and about like they have been for me the last couple of years. Did, across, did, across, sorry, across all sports, like, you know, when a team's losing and losing a lot, a lot of people you know, call for the coach to be mm. to be gone. It's happening in our um, teams here over in the West in the AFL and it happens in NBA, it happens everywhere. Did you cop much of that and how did you sort of go through – Sort of being the face of of, of it all. And yeah, did you get sacked? I want at the back end, did you get I sacked? I didn't get sacked because <laughs> I saw out the contract. So I haven't <laughs> yeah. officially been sacked yet. Okay. Uh, but no, I was looking as a two-year contract and it got to the probably round six or seven of the second year where I was informed um, that the contract wouldn't be renewed, but they were very keen for me to see it out and finish the season, et cetera. And my, while I was gutted at the time, because I was, I was actually seeing a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel in the second year after the first couple of games. And again, getting to the stage where I was getting a little bit more experience, where I was identifying growth in different ways above and beyond scorelines, results, margins, because perspective was really important. Everyone was seeing the end result and the margin. And I'm like, well, we're a team right now that is not going to win a game because the competition is simply just too good. Like it's where we are. So I was aware of that. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. But perhaps externally a lot of people may not have been on the same page as that. But um, I didn't necessarily feel like – I probably didn't get consumed in that, to be honest. I was too busy trying to survive as opposed to worrying <laughs> about, you know, am I going to keep my job? Because, you know, legitimately after the first year I'm like – can I do this again? Do I want to do this again? Because it wasn't a great life to live. Um, and I certainly was struggling a number of different ways personally that I'm like, oh, this this can't be what it's like. And I think too, when you go into a job like that where it's meant to be the dream and it's the nightmare, you're like, this can't be real. So um, I think it's really important from a, from a coaching perspective and it's something I'm very disciplined with now, whether you win or lose, you know, keeping your head down and focused on whose opinions are important is critical. 
Um, because as we know in professional sport, every single person that watches has a very <laughs> strong opinion. They're the expert. Yeah, and you can win and still be a shit-ass coach and you can lose and still be the best coach in the world. Yes. So it's it's really fickle, but I think you just got to have a level of acceptance and awareness and understanding that that's the industry, but keep your inner sanctum close and, and make sure they're the opinions that, that – that actually matter in the long run. So you move on from the Thunderbirds, you go back to the UK, you do some coaching over there. Uh, just just reading about and listening to a few chats you've had, is it true that you effectively live in paycheck to paycheck with not a lot of money in your bank account effectively over there trying to make ends meet basically? Yeah, absolutely. It was 2019 was one of the most difficult years and I really struggled at the end of the 2018 season after I finished up at Adelaide and I remember just getting out of Adelaide as quickly as I possibly could and moved back just into my mum's place temporarily um, until I figured out what my next steps were. And I think it was really challenging for mum too because I I don't think she recognised who I was. I I felt really lost and there was no real support coming saying, hey, Dan, how can we help? What's next? What would you like to do? What support we can provide? It was very much you're left to your own device and you've got to find your own way through the shit show, so to speak. Luckily for me, I'll always find a way and I just probably needed time to navigate what was next. And I did make a very conscious decision though that as soon as Adelaide finished, I said to myself that this experience has to be the start of me, not the end. And whatever happens next and whatever I go on to achieve is going to be because of what I've just endured and gone through. Um, And so I made the decision really quickly, really clearly in my mind that I had to get back to coaching immediately, um, whatever that looked like. And through good timing and fortune, um, the head coaching job at Northern Ireland for the World Cup had popped up. Um, And so I put my hand up for that and got the role. And it paid um, very minimally, but enough to kind of get me over there, I guess. Well, it wasn't enough to move me over there full time. Um, And so we were looking at ways perhaps of just flying in and out to Northern Ireland, which was going to be a bit of a a hell travel schedule. Assuming the price is right, fun's gone. (laughs) Gone. We're we're gone by now. Where's Larry? Give him a call. Yeah, we're gone. Um, All-stars edition. Yeah, but my my (laughs) old club in the UK, Manchester Thunder, actually, I think, save the day because they offered me an assistant coach job, which gave me a little bit of extra extra pocket money to essentially be able to move back over to the UK. And as you touched on, live paycheck to paycheck. So anything that I was probably earning in those first 12 months in 2019 after Thunderbirds was going straight to living expenses and you know accommodation, food, travel, all that type of stuff. So, and I was comfortable with that. I, I knew that I had to keep my foot in the door at a high performance level somewhere. So I thought going to the World Cup and coaching a national team with all the different opposition and challenges would be great to add to the CV and a great coaching experience to see how I went in tournament play and all that type of stuff. And then getting back to the weekly grind of a a Super League series in the UK and being a defense specialist coach was a skill set that I really wanted to evolve in. Um, From an experience perspective, they were great jobs with – great organisations that I think kept my career alive. So really grateful to Karen Rollo at Northern Ireland and Debbie Hallis at Manchester Thunder for allowing me that. Uh, but certainly financially it was I'm living paycheck to paycheck and, hey, Dad, can you flip us a couple of grand? I, I need some cash. Um, so that that was tough. But 
after the World Cup, Northern Ireland turned my role into a part-time job, so financially was in a better position. And then the Leeds Rhinos Rugby League Club in the UK got a license to have a netball team in the UK Super League, and they approached me to be their inaugural head coach. So huh. after a really tough year in 2019, landed on my feet um, and was able to yeah have a bit more disposable income, which was nice. But it was such a big decision to make, but I'm so glad that I did it. And it really just demonstrated to me, you know, if you want something bad enough, find a way to make it happen, no matter how tough it can get. Uh, at what point did you go and do the Camino Trail in Spain? When did you do this? Yeah, so I did that um, after the World Cup. So it was August, September or September, October of 2019. So we're in the right areas. Right areas. Mm, yeah. And I was still struggling. I reckon I was still trying to come to terms with what had happened at Adelaide accepting the fact that I wasn't making money and everything that I was was coming in was going straight out. So, you know, as a 35-year-old at the time, I'm like, I can't be living paycheck to paycheck. Like that was really stressing me out. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, where is the path forward? I was probably still struggling with little moments here and there of just some anxieties and depressions off the back of the Adelaide experience. But as soon as I did the Camino and finished the Camino, or actually I got one week into the Camino, and I clearly remember on day seven, you get all these weird, wonderful experiences on the Camino, but it was day seven where my backpack felt like it had nothing in it, which for me was like this symbolism of I had let it all go. Like that first week was just letting all the stress, the disappointment, the struggle of the past two, three years behind. And so I was walking away from it and the rest of the Camino for the next 700 kilometres. So what is, what is it? Is it a giant walking trail? And you, Are you out there by yourself or are you with people? Yeah, so it's it's a it's a world-famous pilgrimage, they call it, and people walk for many different reasons. And you start uh, in a little village called saint jean pierre de port in the foothills of the Pyrenees in France, and you basically walk for 35 days, 800 kilometres, all the way through France, through Spain, uh, through the countryside, and you end up in Santiago which is a really, you know, famous part of, of Spain. And then if you want to, you can work, walk for an extra three days, which takes you to Finisterre, which is what they call the end of the world. So you basically walk to this lighthouse that overlooks the ocean and you can't see a thing inside. Like wow. it's, it's amazing, but you do it by yourself. Like a lot of people will do it just by themselves for lots of different reasons. Um, and the experiences and the journey you go on whilst walking with the, all you have is a backpack of your possessions. Yeah. All you have is time in your own head, in your own thoughts. And then you get blessed with all of these unbelievable experiences of walking alongside or meeting different people from all over the world. And you have these most profound, in-depth conversations with people that you would not even have with your most loved and cherished people in your life. And the fact that you're all there walking for a reason that is very different but you're all bound by this journey that you're kind of going on. So some of the people I met and the conversations I had um, were so timely and like meant to be that just made the experience unbelievable. But, but like I said, after the first week, I'd let everything go and the next four weeks were just walking towards this kind of new version or this new energy that I was kind of creating. So it was amazing. The best thing I've ever done, the best experience of my life, um, and it just goes to show the importance of mindfulness and nature to get real clarity on what's most important. Wow. I've heard That's you cool. say mindfulness just then. I've heard you say flow state. 
the the mental side of the game sounds like it's a pretty important part of your coaching philosophy. Yeah, huge. I think um, you know, particularly when you look at the top level beat in any sport, the majority of athletes are physically the same in terms of their capacities, the skill sets are the same, their actual ability is the same, but how they think about themselves and each other, how they think about moments, how they think about situations determines how good those skills and talents are. So, yeah, I'm massive on the mindset. I'm massive on the moments and being really present to it and how you think about something at any point in time and um, really encouraging the athletes that I work with to be real students of the game and I really believe that that's a competitive edge that will separate good from great and great from exceptional. So, yeah, it's probably why I play a really active role in game day and I'm very up and about in how I coach even at training. Um, but energy and tapping into the mind of the athletes that you work with is really, really important. If we can fast forward to being appointed as the head coach of the West Coast Fever, which is the role you hold today, what's the first meeting like with that group of players? Yeah, it was an interesting one. I think um, it was a six-month application process that went for a long time, which was fantastic because it was much about West Coast Fever deciding if I was the right coach for them, but also for me because of all of the experiences I had leading up to that point in time, actually being really comfortable going, is West Coast Fever the right team for me? Mm. And I think as a head coach now, there's a great understanding that there's a time and a place for a certain coach with a certain team. And I felt great synergy, everything I needed to ask or know, everything was on the table, so really comfortable in that. So I went in with a level of confidence that I was the right person for what the team needed at that point in time. And I knew that what was already in place was proving to be successful, but we needed to add a little bit of value in a couple of key areas to take us to the next step. And so my approach in meeting a lot of the athletes for the first time, because I'd only ever coached one of them before or had any interaction with one or two, was we're doing you're doing everything really well. So it's acknowledging basically where they were and being really clear to them around what I think that I can bring to this team that will take us to where we want to go and selling that vision from day one to get their buy-in and take them on the journey. And the reality of 2022, everything that we said we would do, everything we said we would become, everything we said that we would overcome and work our way through, we did. Um, and I think that's really important. Sell the vision, bring them on a journey, and most importantly is make them aware and understand that they are equally a part of it. So it's not my team as the head coach, it's our team and we're in this together essentially. Um, so getting them on board and understanding the role they play within the journey that you want to go on is is really important. So that that's kind of how I frame the first conversations and I immediately felt with every athlete, fantastic synergy, always going to be a few challenges along the way, um, but it put my heart at ease going, this is the team for me. I'm the coach for this team. We can do something. And that's how it played out. Let's be the first team to win a flag for this club. Is that a direct quotation for you? But if it's not, is that what you wanted to do? Win your first season? Yeah, it, absolutely. It was what I identified and acknowledged in the group is you have everything you need in front of you within this playing list, the resourcing, the staff, the infrastructure to be successful. And what I had to tap into was what was holding them back at that last moment to get across the line. And I think it was coming in there with 
consolidating all of the elements of their programming and all of those things within the West Coast Fever way that had got them to two grand finals in the past number of years, um, but identifying where perhaps the gaps or the shortcomings or the blind spots had been to not get all the way. So my job coming in was going, we're going to consolidate all these things that will get us to here, then we're adding this, we're adding that, we're adding this, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and then we're going to get to where we want to go to. So I never really hammered down the language of we're here to win the premiership at all costs. It's it was more around we're gonna get to we're gonna go to places we've never been before and see what happens. First we have to get there, we're gonna do the work. And what I introduced to the group was this language around championship material. And so my philosophy around this is to become a champion, you must become championship material first. So when the real moment of opportunity arrives, like grand final day, have you done everything you possibly need to, be it skills, structure, strategy, relationships, dynamics, chemistry, personal growth, embrace hardship, challenges, resilience? Do you have everything you need to be ready for that moment? If so, you are ready to become a champion. If not, there are still gaps and growth areas. And that was really the journey I took the team on, becoming championship material. And that was kind of the cornerstone of what our culture became um, and still very much is to this day. Um, and the journey and the way they all embrace that was was most powerful. I feel like I could become a champion after that. That was good. <laughs> That'd be impressive stuff. Um, how does and this isn't? I'm trying to think of like a non-blunt way to ask this. Um, Just be blunt. Yeah. So how do you lose like 28 games or sorry 27 games in a row and then come back and get appointed as a coach of a team that you say is like so close to getting over that final hurdle? Like, what was it about you that they thought? Like screw the the the, the twenty seven game loss like mm. those two years in Adelaide. Like what? Not like how did you convince them? But mm. you know they have to acknowledge that was part of your journey. Oh, uh, and it was it was a part of my journey and story that I had to own, and that I chose very quickly after the experience at Adelaide to own it, and to ensure that it was like I said before the start of me, not the end. So. You know, you can be a rookie coach and get 27 losses in a row, but what does that coach look like by taking all of those experiences, refining their craft, getting in different environments, getting different experience, different exposure in five years' time? And so when I left Australia at the end of 2018, my mission was to reposition myself when I felt I was ready and the time was right and the place was right to position myself to get back into Suncorp Super Netball. I was determined that that was going to happen and I was hell-bent on, I will do this. I don't know when, I don't know how, I don't know where, but this is why I'm going over to live off the savings and live for minimal and you know take a couple of steps back down the chain of hierarchy of command, so to speak, in terms of what I was doing at the time. I'm like, I'm going to make this happen. And so when I went into the interview for West Coast Fever, it was really about I'm owning this experience at Adelaide. This is what it taught me. This is what it gave me. This is where I've grown and this is what I've done since. And so I go and take Northern Ireland to a top 10 finish at the World Cup, which is a respectful result for a country like Northern Ireland. We wanted top eight, but we got top 10. I helped Manchester Thunder win a premiership. They won the premiership that year in 2019. And so while I was still struggling a little bit in that year, from a career perspective, still some great successes and extra experiences. And then I go and take, as the inaugural head coach, 
the foundation team at Leeds Rhinos build a brand new team from scratch, a full high-performance program and system, and in our inaugural season, go all the way to the playoffs. So they looked at that and I think really respected that. Um, but I think too, you know, coaching's a tough industry. Some will always judge you on one experience, but I was really lucky with the panel that West Coast Fever put together. We had some really accomplished high-performance people and industry experts in a number of different sporting fields on that panel that I think they really respected the journey, the ownership of the journey, what I had done from the experiences, um, and it was obviously enough for them to deem that I was the right person to take the job. So you've got to own the good, bad, the ugly, the indifferent. There's no hiding or shying away from 27 losses. But I tell you now, I wouldn't be a premiership winning coach if I hadn't worked my way through 27 losses and come out the other side a better coach because of it. So um, every experience is a really important one if you can look at it for what it really is. So yeah, last year, cool. which is a premiership season for you, doesn't come without some form of, I don't know, it's not controversy, but uh, – COVID was still, I'm assuming you had protocols to be playing with there with, you know, from, from face value, quite a small squad. Mm. You know, it's only a squad of, what is it, 10, 12? What's yeah, it? so 10 contracted athletes and then four training partners that can come into the team for injury or illness. Which so is small. Tiny. Yeah, that's, yep. that's really tiny. small given some of the stuff you would have had to go through, I'm assuming, COVID testing, um, little bubbles probably, uh, travel requirements from Perth. You had to overcome a fair bit there. And then uh, – Am I right? Perth, Perth bought the grand final. Perth, Perth got the grand final here, mm. right midway through the season, mm. and you guys were sort of travelling okay, but you weren't sitting on top of the ladder when that happened. Can you speak about that experience, both COVID and then knowing that if everything goes well, you've got a home grand final sitting there, but you need to get there? Mm. Yeah, it's a good question. I think the, the COVID challenge was difficult for every team because players were getting in and out of, of teams and lineups because of positive testing and all that type of stuff. And we would be testing before every court session, every match. So game day morning was always a nervous wait to make sure we had a, a clear team. And, Did you have any laid outs? Uh, there were majority of weeks someone was out and there was a handful of times where they were out the morning of the game. So And then they're uh. stuck in a hotel room in isolation and all that type of stuff. And um, that happened for a lot of teams. And, and we certainly had a COVID impact, I would say, the majority of games. So it wasn't really until about round 12, 13 where I had my full list available to me um, consistently. And if it wasn't COVID, there was injuries, all those types of things. So we were bringing training partners in. We were bringing supplementary players in. The lineup was changing all the time. And even I think the complication of – you know, integrating an athlete back into the team after COVID because, you know, some would respond really well and have COVID for five days, no training, straight back on court, play a full game and play their best game they've ever played. <laughs> Others would get out there and, you know, couldn't bloody breathe. So it was <laughs> it was really challenging. So you had to really think on your feet and work your way through it. So that was a challenge for everybody. Um, and then the grand final, you know, being sold to Perth, I think was, was a controversial moment and it was probably – more controversial from the East Coast, in particular Melbourne, because Vixens at the time were, they were dominating the competition. They were well ahead on top of the table and they were looking like that they were going to host the major semi final. And all the talk was they were going to be the ones that then play themselves into the home grand final. Because that's what previously happened, right? Before it started being sold. So it's been sold to Melbourne this year, yep. correct? But before Perth last year, it was. 
the top ranking team would get the home grand final. Yeah, so who, or whoever wins the major semi final. <laughs> so top two playoff in you know second chance major semi, and the winner of that semi final gets to host the grand final a fortnight later. So you know Vixens were definitely the best team in the home and away season, and it was looking like they'd they'd kicked us twice in the home and away round. So everyone was thinking that it was Vixens' title to win, so to speak, and you know they were probably gearing up for you know home semi final win that home grand final big crowd in Melbourne um, and as it turned out you know we obviously well, the, the government bought the grand final um, but then when we got to the major semi-final it was like it was go time for us and we absolutely dominated that semi-final and as it turned out essentially won the right to host <laughs> the grand final I guess or or put to bed all of the I guess controversy that could have gone around it if Vixens had won that semi-final and then had to play it elsewhere. I was right. I was working on a sports show here in Perth when all of this happened, and I remember thinking, again external, like how good's this for the for the Fever? And everyone was carrying on and the controversy, and you don't have to speak about it, but I was covering it, and I I just kept thinking, look, your Fever can get their shit together and actually put yourself in a position to succeed here. It's mm. the best thing possible that could have happened, and like you said, you ended up. You would have had it anyway, which mm. was I found it hilarious mm. just watching on like all this carry on, all this controversy, and it's like, oh, you Didn't mean matter. nothing happened whatsoever? Because yeah. <laughs> I, I was really uncomfortable with it at the start, and I know I had a couple of conversations with some of my key staff about it that. I didn't necessarily like the concept of it not being given to the team that earns the right to host the grand final. And I think, look, historically that's how our sport's always been in a number yes. of codes. That that's how it works. So I was a little bit uncomfortable that we knew the grand final was going to be in Perth. But again, what we communicated to the playing group is like, well, we've had no hand in this decision. We've got nothing to do with this decision. It's actually a great opportunity sitting there for us if we choose to look at it for what it is. So then that became our focus. Let's go and earn the right to get into that grand final and get a capacity crowd at RAC Arena. And again, the way we showed up for that semi-final, I think blew a lot of people away. They were expecting Vixens to dominate us and the way that we attacked the game, we were up by 19 goals at one point in that game, which is huge in a in a netball match. Um, but it was genuinely watching a year's preparation, a year's effort, a year's work, a year's of conversation into one moment. I'm like, now's the time to do it, guys. Time to strike. Let's go. And they were exceptional. So... Uh, it all played out as it should have. <laughs> yeah, correct. But there's no simple terms when you win a premiership. There's good things, there's bad things. Can you, uh, again, you speak a lot about the mental side. Is it is that what that was, that semi-final? Was that mental overpowering talent? Because you'd lost to the Vixens during the year twice. Mm. So it's not talent. You didn't get more talented, mm. did you? No. As a team? No. I think, it, I think it comes down to readiness more than anything. The biggest thing for me is, you know, in terms of my coaching philosophy is preparation. So preparation is critically important. Your preparation can be, it can be dirty. It can be really messy. It can be whatever it needs to be. But you've got to make sure that you are both as a part of the team prepared for what the challenge presents, but also that you've done the work to look at yourself to be ready for that moment when it comes. And I felt that probably for the first time, this West Coast Fever group were truly ready for that moment and that they had done the work in all of the areas that are required to be successful, that they went into that major semi-final really confident in one, how they could play the game, two, 
that they hadn't played their best against Vixens in the two rounds that they had beaten us convincingly. So we were like, well, it's time, guys. Time to strike. Let's go for it. Um, and they believed that their best was yet to come and they proved that. So I think the readiness element is most important. And to win a premiership, you've got to be ready. There's no luck involved in winning the grand final. It's you're either ready or you're not quite ready or you're nowhere near ready. Um, and I thought our ability to work through pressure moments to build a relationship with pressure, which was language I used with the players from day one, said if you don't find a comfortable relationship with pressure, you are never going to get to where you need to go to. So if you want to win a premiership, you need to find a way to have this healthy respect and relationship with pressure and to be able to endure, overcome and work through. And just little things like that that they embraced, I think, were, were significant shifts. I was at that game, uh, RAC Arena, um, July 3rd. Is that mm. right? Does that sound about right? Certainly. Um, <laughs> I was. It was the first netball game I'd been to in about ten years, and I was incredibly impressed. But I won the crowd, and the just the atmosphere was great. Um, but if you can reflect personally on that day and winning the championship, and now our listeners, and our audience have heard your full story from growing up in Geelong to playing to the coaching ups and downs. Is like, is it? Do you look at it as a full circle moment? Like, is that is that what that did that feel like? That uh, absolutely. And I think we've all got very different stories of grand final day, particularly our journey to actually get to the stadium. Everyone kind of has these really cool little stories that happened to them during that day. And I always go for a game day run um, in Bells Rapids and in the Swan Valley where I live, and just to get out with nature and um, you know get really clear in my mind. It's where I do my most creative thinking and. I remember being on that morning run and was really emotional just reflecting on I'm like, how the fuck have I got here? Like this is just, <laughs> this is insane. Yeah. At, you know, finishing Adelaide, never would I think that I'm about to prepare a team to go and play in a grand final and just took a moment to to reflect on it, be really proud, to be really happy to be where I was but really hungry that I wanted to finish off this journey with this great group of players. Um, and that was really interesting. And a couple, you know, little random things happened throughout the day. I'm like, oh, this is bizarre. This is meant to be. This is meant to be. Um, and when I got into the change room and we finally had our last little really brief team talk, I really keep those team talks brief in a pressure game because, you know, you just got to make sure it's really simple. But I just remember looking around the circle in the room and there was just this unbelievable calm aggression in the eyes of everybody. Body, that I felt in my heart of hearts and in my gut of guts, the only thing that was going to happen on grand final day was that we were going to win. Didn't know how we were going to do it, what it was going to look like, but the choice is we are winning and that's all that is happening today. The next moment we walk out and I just feel like, yep, this is going, this is going, to, this is going to unfold. Don't know how, but it will. The next moment I had, I'm sitting next to my assistant coach at the time, Belinda Reynolds, Warm-up started and I've just taken a moment to look around the crowd and take it in. And normally I don't really pay too much attention to the crowd. And in that moment I've looked around and I've gone, Jesus Christ, like the back row, every single seat was packed. in that 14,000-seat stadium was capacity. I'm like, this is significant, right? This is unbelievable. And then, you know, straight back into game mode, locked in with the players, game started. And, you know, we've started that first quarter really well. And honestly, I think... The game was so surreal in the fact that I like it was like a dream. It was the stuff that you absolutely dream it to be in the fact that everything that we had worked on, talked about, 
planned for this scenario, that scenario, this mindset, your calm aggression, your passion, your flow state. Everything was like just unfolding before my eyes. I'm like, this is just insane, right? Unbelievable. And then little things like I always use the example of Verity Simmons, who's our center, real little jet through the midcourt. And she plays the game just on real instinct, never really had too much awareness perhaps of, I guess, the game sense of clock and time and how you can control tempo and everything. I've been trying to teach her that throughout the course of the season. You know, put the speed on here, just pull it back in this moment. We're up by eight. If you take your time here, the opposition gets a bit more frustrated, just giving her a few of those things. And for the first time in the entire season, we're up by eight or nine goals. And I see Verity walk the ball back to the center circle. I'm like, she is, <laughs> she is, she is in a flow state She's right on. now, like unbreakable. And it was just stuff like that. Where I'm like, if there's ever a day for it to all come together, <laughs> it's right now. Um, and then probably, you know, to be honest, just probably the last 60 seconds where I actually probably realize, even though we're up by nine or eight goals or whatever it is, or ten goals, eleven goals, realize we were going to do it. That was the first time I just actually started to hear, hear the crowd and the crowd is just going nuts and nuts and nuts and, you know, the players could start to feel it and I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is actually going to happen. Um, but unbelievably surreal and I think just the joy on so many people's faces, not just in our current playing group but the people that had been involved over the 25-year history to get to that moment. We weren't just playing for ourselves. We were carrying history with us and this trying to the be first the first. Flag. This is the first flag for West Coast Favourite. Ever in 25 years of history. So for it to be, you know, significant, the 25-year anniversary, um, and I just have so much respect for the players in the fact that, if there's ever a day you want to show up and be your best, it's grand final day and every single one of them was at the top of their game and as a team we were unbreakable um, and that is what we set out to do and that is what we became um, in that moment that mattered the most. It was bloody incredible and this chat's been unreal yeah, as well, mate. Awesome. We're going to have to I want get you to coach to, my life. We're gonna, yeah, <laughs> well, maybe, if, you know, maybe after things go down at West Coast. <laughs> life coach, yeah. Dan Wright. Uh, I, I want to finish up with um, – that gave me chills, actually. Yeah, well, I, the, the few things you said so re- resonate with with my game, yeah, footy. The 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 um like the, what did you say? Not passive aggression, but the calm, calm aggression. Yeah, yeah, so Simo, I remember like I'd never thought about this before. When you were talking, I was thinking about you know the grand final we won, and Simo had put a circle um, with a dot dotted face, and there was a he had a smiling face, and I remember before we went and warmed up, he said, "Right, I've seen you all. You're happy." He scrubbed out the smiling face and he just put a line across and it had a little smirk, like a tiny little smirk, but it was like flat line, mm. but just just enough of a like, you know what's going to happen. And that feeling you're talking about is the feeling that I felt that mm. I don't know how we're going to do this. You know, we're down by five goals in that quarter. Still like I think we, you know, I'm pretty sure we're still going to do this and we did and we won, but it was like this feeling. So, mate, that was unreal. We mm. appreciate you sharing that with us. We know you're in the middle of a season right now. Yeah. Started well, six and one. You've been on the road for a bit, but going well. And make sure you remember you can catch every West Coast Fever game live on KO Sports. Uh, how, how's the season looking? I mean, six and one, it's looking, it's a good start, right? Yeah, going really well. And I think, you know, we've used the first half of the season to get everyone out on court 
really important. I think, you know, you've got to access the depth of your squad to know what they can do under any sort of circumstance, and that's been really pleasing. Um, we've demonstrated a great ability to own games, probably a little bit of susceptibility at times to not be able to hold on huge margins and, and that type of thing. And actually the biggest challenge for us is just understanding how big the challenge from every opposition team that comes at us is. They're not just playing West Coast Fever, they're playing the reigning premiers and they have to play at their very best to compete with us. So it's really important that we're embracing all that stuff, which I've seen so far. Um, we're nowhere near our best, which I'm really excited by, um, but we're showing enough patches in our game and enough continuity in our game from week to week that we're heading in the right direction. So happy with where we are, but uh, always room for improvement. You're, you're scoring incredibly. You're like 70 goals in front of the next like sec, but you've also given up goals. Is that the way you guys play? Are you Are you – Again, I keep going back to footy, but you're like a high-octane Collingwood-type version where you take the game on and you're scoring, but you're getting scored against a bit. I'm assuming that's what you mean by some areas of improvement. Yeah, for sure. I think um, Fever historically have always been a high-scoring team, and you know the quicker we score, the more opportunities the other team has as yes. well to get their volume up. So there's always a bit of perspective in that. But also the other element that's real evident this year across all teams is how teams are now using the super shot period. And quite often for us, we're finding ourselves in a really commanding position going into that super shot period, which means our opposition team are really attacking the two point shots. So, and again, almost attacking it with this real level of carelessness and fearlessness and just going for it. Right. And when you're in that state, they tend to drop. So, um, is that frustrating? Very, <laughs> very. But I think it's you know a part of our game that we know we can get better at to ensure that our strong margins are maintained. Um, but also, again, it's it's how again trying to get the girls to be students of the game and understand not only our psyche in certain times, but what does the opposition need to do right now to ensure that we're one step ahead. So, there's challenges there, and you know we want to make sure that we've you know prepared for all of those situations and we're handling that really well at the moment but I genuinely believe we've got huge room for improvement to simply be better very good Dan awesome. Ryan ladies and gentlemen we before we finish though we did put some questions out to our fans you've heard enough from Dan and mm -hmm. I now it's time for social media not social that's right <laughs> social <Very> media <laughs> very good don't worry I didn't go to uni for journalism but we've come up with that absolute ball terror social media um, we've go got for law though so. yeah correct we've got uh, yeah that's right I did do that um, we've got questions from the fans for you mate just Excellent. a few and uh, some quick hitters David three uh, Dan what is the biggest challenge in working within a female dominated sport and how long would it be till SSN has a men's comp just like we're seeing in traditionally male dominated sports having women's leagues mm. Uh, men's league, I think, will be a while away. I think the, the next step for men's netball in Australia is to get consistency with the international calendar to ensure that when the Diamonds play the Silver Ferns in Constellation Cup, it's paired with the men's. And I think if that can be held for the next three to five years, I reckon that's great progress. Um, we've got to develop SSN in its current form first before we look at adding a men's competition to it, I think, um, but certainly something for the future. Um, and the biggest challenge, I think, in coaching female athletes is is no different to coaching male athletes, I think, is just the complexity of every single individual and understanding the wants and needs of each person and ensuring that they have the resources, support, and you have the time and patience and awareness to check in on those athletes for whatever they need. So um, all athletes are complicated beasts, but that's why I love them. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, I don't love athletes because I'm one of them and I know how frustrating we can be. Uh, Sells Lloydy. We touched on some elements of this question, but I think there's some yeah. elements we haven't. Um, basically, how, how are you embraced as a, a male coach and moving up through the ranks in a, in a female-dominated sport? For me, I felt no different to anyone else in the game ever, and I think it was because I have always never seen myself as anything different. I started the game like the eight-year-old girl that started the game. We both jumped into it at the same age. We both go through the pathway. We both dabble in a bit of community coaching. We both pursue the pathway to the top level. Um, and, you know, irrespective of gender, I've never seen myself anything different to any of the other women coaching, women playing. Um, it's always just been something that I love, and I think that mindset has probably held me in good stead. There's never been a chip on the shoulder for me around being a male in netball. Um, it's my sport that I love, that I feel have always – always been embracing of me for who I am and what I bring to it. Lily A. Marshall. Uh, did your experience with English and Irish teams challenge your coaching style uh, for you to then come back to the SSN and win a premiership in your first year with the Fever? Yeah. Also change your coaching style, not challenge, change your coaching style. Yeah, I think every experience can add to your coaching style. I don't think it necessarily changed my coaching style, but it certainly evolved it to what it is now. Um, and I always encourage coaches to get involved in as many different environments, teams, roles as possible when they're trying to gather their skills uh, because the more diversity you can get within your experiences, the more it can shape you to be a really well-rounded, holistic coach. So every experience is really valuable and the variation of environments is critically important. KO Sports has come in with a question from the top run. Uh, we want to know what does Dan's split screen on KO with netball? Oh, good question. Um, i all the games. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, I definitely enjoy getting involved in the footy. follow the tennis a lot too, so I enjoy the tennis. Um, and any of the Olympic sports that pop up, some of those second-tier sports, they're the ones I'm onto pretty quickly. So this is a new little feature that I've actually figured out with KO Sports. You can split screen yeah, sports. Great. So you can have AFL on the left, netball on the right. You can go four-way. Um, we're going to invest in a bigger TV so we can actually do it a little bit more. Can I have that one? Um, maybe when you, when you say footy, do you mean AFL? AFL, or yeah. okay, Who do you go for? Well, Geelong historically, I don't yes. follow anyone passionately and I've probably got more of an interest in the coaches at the moment and great respect for Craig McCrane, how he's flying at the moment. I really enjoy his style but also really enjoying, you know, the – I guess, the evolution of a Michael Voss in his second opportunity. Um, I think that stuff's been fantastic. So, yeah, really enjoying watching that that element of the game. Just from a coaching point of view, I'll add one last one in there. Sam Mitchell, you've seen what he's, uh, you know, very publicly done with a, with a rebuild. Have mm. you got respect for kind of out, out in the plank, basically, as a coach? Yeah, absolutely. I think it demonstrates a real level of confidence in the clarity of direction that he wants to take the team. And um, the biggest thing when you're doing things like that is ensuring that everybody around you is on board the journey. Mm. So while it might be challenging now, it's it's light at the end of the tunnel type of stuff and an eye for the future. So if it if it pays off for him and the club in the long term, I reckon it's a really bold move that, that should absolutely be applauded. So tough times for good times to come in the future. That's Dan Ryan, ladies and gentlemen. I think one of the most impressive interviews we've had on back chat Dan. absolutely i don't think i need to ask questions about that mate we appreciate your time did you have fun absolutely loved it boys thanks for the chat very good thank you you can find us on socials backchat double underscore uh, find everything you need to know with the podcast backchat.com.au uh, uh, sign up as a patreon sign up as a patron on patreon on, become man. a vip i'm gonna ask dan a question over on to. patreon around um i reckon he might have a story or two as a, as a either as a male coach or as a, as a male player coming up that we might have exclusively mm -hmm. for our vips a big thank you to our sponsors fleet network of course driving 
back chat Big in time. 2023. Swimpley, Whippersnapper Whiskey, Margaret River Roasting Co., Blue Bet, Shelter Brewing Co., Leadable Cameras. I sound like your shirt looks damn. <laughs> There's sponsors everywhere. Uh, and a very big thank you to KO Sports, of course. Catch all of the Suncourt Super Netball every game live. Couple of freebies as you go, and you can split the screen. Yeah, I don't know how much once. better I can do with a read than that. Backchatpodcast.com.au. Thank you much, Dan. <laughs>